Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a beautiful sunny day in Southern California. Today, I have a timely guest along with this historical moment that we experienced this week of a former president being arrested. I couldn't help but want to talk about this and I believe I found the perfect person to do that with. So my guest today is known as a tenacious litigator outside of San Francisco nationally recognized with 50 criminal cases tried to verdict, which is just, if most people don't know that, that is a huge accomplishment. She is accomplished at handling a broad range of matters from complex white-collar cases, investigations of high-profile murders, defense of executives accused of sexual misconduct or harassment, as well as a wide variety of other serious criminal cases, but criminal cases nonetheless. And her expertise extends to a unique understanding of the environment executives face in the press, decision-making where business and law intersect, enabling her to do more effective management of the risks of the officers, the directors that she represents. She is rated super lawyer, criminal defense, white collar. She's also listed in the who's who of legal, the international who's who of business lawyers. I want to welcome today. Gail Schiffman. Welcome, Gail. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you about this subject today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here to speak with you. Well, that's great. So obviously our our conversation that we had just the other day, I don't think we even realized what was happening in between talking then and talking today. Uh, that the, you know, the former president uh, this past week obviously has just engulfed the airwaves. So um, you know, when you have high profile clients like this. What is your first first thought that that oh my client this is not going to be good. Like what what is your first gut reaction to that scenario? You know, in a situation like former president Trump now defendant Trump endured this week where he has really been on notice for months if not a few years that he's about to face potential criminal indictment an arrest, the very first thing you think about if you are consulted early enough is the well-being of your client to ensure that he is fully informed as early as possible about what the process will be like, what its impact on him or her individually will be like, and to try to prepare not only the potential criminal defendant, but also their family for what they are about to endure. Mm, yeah. And the, I would imagine the, you know, the, the ripple effect. Um, I don't, I don't know if you know this for sure, but I work closely with the DOJ on the Enron litigation 
And coming from the Department of Justice side, um, you know, I didn't have the same, but I have worked with defendants like Scott Peterson, who, you know, both sides of that aisle I've seen. But, you know, the the New York DA stated that, you know, criminals who break the law like this are charged like this day in and day out. Um, so is this how every criminal defendant is treated? Is that true? Because there seem to be some things that weren't normal. I mean, um, I think the best direct answer to that is no and yes. <laughs> yes, every criminal defendant is arraigned, right? If there are charges filed, every criminal defendant has to initially appear, which is what an arraignment is. They have to be notified of the charges, which is what the arraignment um, covers. Um, the DA has to, in New York, they, they don't unseal the charges until the day of arraignment. Different jurisdictions, like here in California, it's not necessarily sealed before uh, arraignment, hmm. but it gets unsealed in court in New York state law. Copies are handed over to the defense counsel. Um, usually the defendant gets a direct copy, as I have read in uh, reliable press reports, he was given a copy of the uh, charges, the indictment, which he promptly handed over to his lawyer, one of his many lawyers seated to his left. So in that regard, yes, that is exactly how every criminal defendant charged with any kind of crime, bank robbery, white collar crime, drug offenses. That's how the process begins in state court, especially mm -hmm. in New York. That's how they uh, state court. That's how they begin the process. Mm -hmm. um, every criminal defendant gets booked. Um, and by booking, that means sometimes they go out and they actually arrest someone at their home, at their business, on the street. And sometimes, uh, especially in white collar cases where there's already a lawyer in place for the defendant, they notify counsel and they make arrangements to have the defendant surrender, which is what Trump did. He surrendered mm -hmm. rather than being arrested in Florida and extradited, which is a really ugly process mm -hmm. uh, to New York. And then they go uh, to the police. In this case, in New York and in, in uh, southern Manhattan, the police who do the booking happens to be located in or adjacent to the district attorney's office. So he appeared at the district attorney's office where by law, you get fingerprinted. That's by mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. And then usually they take a photograph called the mugshot, which everybody's mm -hmm. familiar with. But in this case, that's not required by uh, New York state law. The purpose no. of the mugshot is if someone absconds, if they flee, law enforcement around the country will have a photograph of the person for purposes of arrest mm -hmm. if the person is located. Obviously, everyone knows what Donald J. Trump looks like. His photograph is really not necessary. Right. Um, so, so let me ask you this question. So, let's say um, I'm a I'm a drug criminal and I get arrested. Do I have the option to surrender? You know, it depends, right? So sometimes there are um, proactive arrests, you know, that are are reactive to a crime in progress. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be a drug sale on the street corner. For instance, uh, police see the drug sale in process, boom, they arrest the buyer and the seller, um, mm -hmm. right? So no, in that case, they might not give you the option mm -hmm. of appearing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but when the police and the DA's office are investigating crimes, sometimes they give you the option of surrendering on the charges. It just really depends. Would you say that happens more in white collar than in just your average street? I mean, you know, let, let's talk about white. Let me let you answer that question first, but then I want to talk to you about the white collar difference. So is, do you think that that's you get a lot more options to surrender in white collar than you do? You do. And yeah. you shouldn't. Uh, you really shouldn't. For instance, sometimes uh, there's investigations that go on for a long time uh, called racketeering charges or larger drug conspiracies, not the little street corner sales. And they don't usually give any of those guys, and they're usually guys, um, mm-hmm. usually women, they don't usually give them the option of surrendering. They just mm-hmm. assume they're going to flee. They're generally people of color. And yes, they are treated differently. White collar cases are generally, um, you know, more white defendants, not exclusively, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually, usually higher net worth people and usually, I'd say more likely than not, given an option of uh, surrendering on the charges. Not always. For instance, sometimes they want uh, law enforcement and pr- the prosecution wants the visual of the perp walk, mm-hmm. the guy in handcuffs. I think in Enron, they did the perp walk, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah they did. Because they wanted to send a signal out to uh, potential white collar defendants we're coming for you and we're not going to treat you any differently was the Mm -hmm. idea. But of course, since then that's gotten muddied in the process. Oh, I was going to add. So I wanted to ask you about that. So talk to me about how white collar crime developed versus just crime. Like you, we had an interesting conversation a little bit about that the other day and I, I never thought about it the way you talked about it. So can you tell me, tell my listeners a little bit about how that kind of developed over time versus everybody's just in the same criminal level. Right. It used to, you know, I've been doing this for long enough that I can actually say back in the day. And, um, you know, there has always been all different kinds of criminal activity. There's always been drug sales. There's always been, you know, illegal drug sales, illegal alcohol sales, uh, illegal tobacco sales, bank robberies, uh, you know, robbing the bank when it was on the you know, on the railroads and they were moving money. And I mean, there's, you know, armed robbery, stealing directly from people on the street, uh, break-ins into people's homes, uh, you know, um, lying on your taxes, you know, all kinds of crimes. Murder, right? Murder, mayhem, mayhem, bribery of public officials, kickbacks, if you send business to me, you know, uh, I'll mm-hmm. give X amount of dollars. That's existed since, you know, probably since the beginning of time. <laughs> and um, it, I think it was in the 80s when in the feds in New York charged Drexel Burnham um, mm-hmm. and Michael Milken with this enormous, at that time, enormous mm-hmm. securities fraud case all of a sudden, you know, people's eyes, by people I mean lawyers and silk stocking fancy law firms opened their eyes and they were like, holy cow, you know, there's a lot of money to be made by representing these executives charged with these 
business crimes, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of calling it white collar, it, it's a crime mm-hmm. occurring in the course of business. Mm-hmm. And um, the white shoe firms and the silk stocking firms started to develop uh, departments inside their firms where they started to represent business crime defendants. Mm-hmm. They coined white collar as the phrases and all of a sudden there was white collar crime and general crimes and really they've always existed and the same lawyers have always done it but now firms that have corporate departments now often offer representation of people that had previously been considered dirty and disgusting mm-hmm. interesting and, you know in theory white collar or business crime is prosecuted more than it used to be, but there are still differences in how defendants are treated and how they are sentenced in white collar or business crimes and in other general crimes. Oh, interesting. Cause that that's, you're walking right into a subject that I want to talk about. Is it, why do you think that there's this perception out there that falsifying documents is not breaking the law. Like if it was me, you know, I'm, I'm just a small business person. I'd be sunk. You know, I mean, I have people come in and oh, I want to see your books. And, you know, I mean, I'm held to a standard that, you know, and I'm a tiny little business person, you know, why is it this perception that you can falsify documents and break the law and it's okay? Do you know why? Um, well, I think that's just a perception amongst a certain group. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, I believe that there's a a small group of people, a minority of Americans who would think that uh, falsifying business records is okay. Um, Some business people would say that's just how everybody does it. Why am I being singled out for what Mm -hmm. everybody does in this business? But um, that is not a defense to a crime. I'm just doing what everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard it from business execs, like, I'm not doing anything wrong. This is how we do business in, in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a crime lying, uh, it, you know, falsifying records to set up a uh, tax cheat conspiracy to uh, lie, you know, and uh, engage in election fraud, to, to do that all as a ruse for further crimes. Mm-hmm. Those are serious crimes. They're not much different than obstruction of justice. And that's another phrase that mm-hmm. some people, in, including uh, Defendant Trump, uh, mm-hmm. will say that that's just a process crime, you like obstruction. Right. That's ridiculous. If you had me on an actual crime, you'd charge me with an actual crime. Well, actually, right. obstructing an investigation, obstructing um, various implementation of other laws, lawful laws, are crimes and they are serious and they go directly to the rule of law. And so, you know, in New York state, they prosecute these cases all the time. That's what I want to ask you about too, as it sounds like, you know, like they said, day in and day out, this is not something, you know, everybody wants to make it a political game, but I just, you know, when I work with my clients, I try to get them down to some basic words like lying, cheating, uh, not taking responsibility, things that what I call common sense values, right? Common sense values apply to the law. I mean, I mean, there's a spirit of the law and the state of the law, but at the same time, when you lie and you falsify something, you break the law, right? I mean, it really comes down to simplicity, even though it can get very complicated very quickly, doesn't it? 
It's very simple. And we all know it in our gut, right? You know, right. you don't have to go to law school to know this. You don't have to be right. a partisan. You don't have to be a member of any political party. You, We all know in our gut this to right. be true. Right. Because it's a law. I mean, that's why law exists, right? <laughs> it's like, that's what I find so interesting on, you know, the whole banking issue that, you know, when we've dealt with in the past and there's sparkles of what might be happening in the future. But, you know, the whole banking industry of like, you know, like I said, as a small business, I'm held to a different standard than a large corporation when it comes to taxes or I'm, you know, and that that's the part that's always so complicated or it's so confusing because it's like, wait a minute, why is the little guy getting hit? But the big person says, well, yeah, it is, it is business or it's not that really, it's not a crime, but there's a line in the sand, which is why we have law, right? Exactly. And, you know, you asked me an earlier question, you know, is defendant Trump being treated like other defendants? And the truth is, um, he has not been treated like other defendants. Mm-hmm. If, a, if another defendant uh, immediately following their arraignment got on social media, got on television, got on radio, demeaning the judge, demeaning the prosecutor, demeaning the court, demeaning mm-hmm. the family, potentially setting up people as targets, mm-hmm. especially having the kind of following that defendant Trump has, they would be hauled into court the next day within 48 hours to address that gross violation of a fair trial. Yeah, and and that's that I've I've been in that situation before where the judge just pulls you in and it's just like, look, this is not going to happen. I mean, we got gag orders on on Peterson. We got gag orders on multiple cases I've ever worked on, which or you'll have, um, you know. And that was one of the things I was very surprised at. And they, you know, I've heard that it's hard to get a gag order, but how do you get a fair jury at that point, you know, if you don't have a gag order? Well, I, it's not surprising to me that there wasn't a gag order out of the gate, right? Because uh, as much as we know, um, defendant Trump likes to use social media and likes to inflame and incite, right. mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't under a court order at that time. Right. He's still not under a court order. And generally, most judges will wait and warn defendants, if you do X and Y and Z, mm-hmm. this could be troubling. And that's kind of what Judge Mershon did. Um, he was... He started out very cautiously saying inciting violence, threats, and some, I'm sure his defense lawyers would say, well, he didn't do incite violence or make a threat, but uh, he was right on the line of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens when they get that protective order in the Trump case, which will prohibit presumably Trump and his lawyers from posting anything on social media, uh, any evidence. And so I think it's going to be really hard for them, at least the defendant, not to violate that corridor. Yeah, it's well, and it's, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, I've I've been in this situation multiple times, especially in protective orders. Um, And it's respect to the law, it's respect to the court, it's respect to the, you know, the judge and who's actually in charge, which is, I think, going to be Interesting, but I also find that to be interesting in white collar in general, right? I mean, like sometimes you've got these, you know, high executives that have 
done everything they've always wanted to do their entire career. Now they've got somebody in front of them telling them what they can and can't do. And they're like, what? You, you can't tell me how to do that. How do you handle a client where their ego is like in front of that thinking that the judge really doesn't have the power? Yeah. You know, it's really hard to get to the heartbeat of your client, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many times uh, C-suite executives, um, figures like Trump are used to being either the smartest person in the room or believing Mm -hmm. they're the smartest person in the room, or at least used to chairing everything that occurs in any Mm -hmm. room and being the center of attention. And sometimes I'm a very direct speaker personally, um, and not every client enjoys that, but (laughs) at times you do have to get to the meat of it, which is to say, you are no longer the smartest person in the mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. Or and the authority. That That's part of it, too. Is it's, it's the authority around it that comes, you know, because I, I kind of want to move into a little bit about the human side to this, you know, person. I mean, I I will tell you this. I, I try to feel compassion for people in this arena. I, I mean, politicians, I, I mean, this, believe me, this former president has tested me in a way that I wasn't spiritually ready for. But um, but I think that, you know, as we look at, at them as human beings, you know, I've always kind of assessed my clients sitting down in the room, like, you know, what's what, what were they like as kids? Like, what were they like with their parents? What were they like as... Um, and I can I can see it sometimes. I've I've said on this podcast before. I always you know the lar- the loudest one in the room is usually the most insecure, and the one that you know really wants to to speak up and has something very smart and quiet to say. So you can almost see them. How how do you get to their heart? How do you get to them as a human versus just this shell around them? Well, if you saw any of the still images uh, of the photography that was taken in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Defendant Trump sitting at defense counsel table in the well of the court mm-hmm. or the image of him coming out of the just after being booked. And, you know, just the snap snapshot and two two steps walking the hunched over body mm-hmm. the face that just looked like, you know, it had been run mm-hmm. over by a truck. It looks so tired. Yeah. Exhausted. Uh, just having lost all of their spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Dejected. Mm -hmm. Uh, He looked in shock. Yeah, Uh, he did. He looked looked very empty. And I I actually, you know, I I oddly felt a little bad for him because I saw the human side to him when when exactly what you're talking about, the first couple photographs that came out, he just looked lifeless, you know. Um, And it just, you know, it reminded me, and I've never really told this story in public before, but it reminded me of a moment when I was in the Enron litigation, and we had come out for a break, and I had someone tap me on the shoulder, and I turned around, I was standing by the, the water fountain, and I turned around, and it was Ken Lay, and he was very small, and he just said, it was very polite, very grandfatherly, just like, and I knew all this stuff about him, you know, I worked on this case for a long time. And I just had this moment of like, wow, I felt bad for him, you know, I I just and I know sometimes that's, you know, my mom always said to me, oh, you're always there for the hurt dog. And I said, well, but they're human beings, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about human beings that are sitting here that need attention, need control, have fear driven to be, you know, that they're not going to succeed. So, you know, 
that moment for me was this place of just a human side to my job that I had not felt really in a long time before. And um, so when you're dealing with the, you know, the C-suite type people, do you see this side to them? Can they ever get to that place of really talking to you from from their heart versus just, just the ego? Uh, yes, some people are capable of that. Uh, they might not be capable of that right out of the gate. It takes a lot of time spent with the client. Mm-hmm. Um, it sometimes takes, for sure, the family needs to be involved. If mm-hmm. they are hiding it from their family, you probably, it's going to make it more difficult to reach them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's about them coming to terms with what they're facing and maybe with what they've done. Mm-hmm. Defendant Trump is, he's a, in a whole nother class mm-hmm. and breed. And he might be unreachable, quite frankly. Um, I suspect that he is unreachable, ultimately. He, in my, you know, listen, I'm not a psychologist, but if I represented him, I would think that there are definite mental health defects Mm -hmm. that I might want to explore, but he's not a guy that who's going to be open to even discussion of those kinds of things. But have you had, have um, you actually, uh, have you had clients that would open to explore that, to know that they want to change, that they want to get better to like really transform, you know? Yes, definitely. Yeah. See, that's what I think is powerful. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do that in baby steps, which is mm-hmm. the first step is just to go get some added support so mm-hmm. that you can be strong through this process. You mm-hmm. need to be strong for you, you the defendant, to aid in the case, to aid your, your defense team, mm-hmm. and to help your family. So sometimes mm-hmm. that's the entree to it, mm-hmm. uh, right? Just as this is just another tool in the kit to help you get through this process without yeah. even discussing, let's explore what's really going on. Right, right. And it's trust, right? I mean, again, I go back to simple, simple common sense values. It's trust. It's, you know, I work with witnesses all the time. And like you said, it's baby steps. But it's also when they start to trust you, knowing you're not out to hurt them, but to help them. Right. And, you know, obviously, to me, the higher up the hierarchy goes, the more time that takes, you know, obviously, some people want to get out of it, and they want to help themselves right now. But you're right, when once it gets to this, like you call this level, the C-suite level, there's a lot to unpack. And there's a lot to, to, you know, so do you think more mental health care professionals provided like either by the court system or because the first thing everybody says, who's going to pay for it? And to me, it's like, you know, well, they have the money to pay for it. They have this. Well, sometimes the currency isn't money. Sometimes the currency is mental health, right? Um, so do you think that we, if we had a more serious mental health support system through the court system, it would be more accepted? You know, that's an interesting idea. You know, once someone becomes a criminal defendant, the mental health component is not really a part of the criminal justice, the front end of the criminal justice system. Right. Uh, In federal court, and I can't comment specifically about New York state court because I'm not a New York practitioner, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. in federal court, and this would be true in the federal courts in New York as well, Uh, A a person like Donald Trump would be put on what's called pretrial release. And you you might hear that uh, in in the event he's charged in the obstruction case or in the January 6th case. 
Um, and the pretrial office of the federal courts, you get assigned a pretrial officer who's sort of like mm-hmm. your bail officer, if you will. They work for the court. Mm-hmm. And if they believe that mental health treatment is going to be helpful for you as a defendant, they will recommend that to the court. And um, yes, so that is built into on the front side in the federal system. But on Mm -hmm. the state court side, the resources for that don't doesn't really exist. Um, There, you know, there isn't really a pretrial bail office that, you know, every courthouse has county that mm-hmm. would be a county expense ultimately a state expense and that seems unlikely financially um but it's a you know to me it's just you know you have a defense lawyer you have a defense investigator you, you have a mitigation mm-hmm. person and as part of your mitigation you've got a psychologist yep. or psychiatrist on the team if you can right that's just what Right, and that's that's what that's the whole point of the point of this podcast is shining the light on why aren't we doing that more? You know, whether it's doesn't matter if it's a former president, doesn't matter if it's a kid on the street that's gone through trauma and has been arrested. It, you know, there there we're still human beings, and things happen to us, and we act in certain ways of those things, and so. You know, I just I, I find it to be interesting that, you know, we have this juxtaposition of someone in such high power and yet we have someone who's on the street and yet they are the same but yet different. And it's so interesting to me how that even can be in this those words can be in the same sentence because it but it's true. But um but you know, uh, what do you do for yourself? What what do you do to keep yourself uh emotionally, mentally healthy to get through? Cause I I mean, you know, I've been through these trials and they're not they're not uh they're not easy and with that with those verdicts you have on your belt, what do you do? Um, well, some people would say I don't do enough. Um, <laughs> maybe, and I, I might agree with them. You know, when you're in the throes of a trial, you're definitely not, you're not mm-hmm. really doing anything for yourself, to be quite right. honest. Right. Um, and even in the throes of a trial prep, which can go on for months, it is really mm-hmm. hard. Um I, I, uh, at one time in my life, I read a lot of books uh, written by famous writers about boxing, like Joyce Carol Oates and Ernest Hemingway. And when you read books on boxing, it is similar to what you do to prepare for trial and be in trial. Mm-hmm. Um, both the physical, it, you know, it's not just up in your head, there's also a physical mm-hmm. component to trial. And it's, I'm taking on behalf of my client and sometimes personally, if you've got kind of a crazy prosecutor or a crazy judge, uh, I'm taking figurative blows to the body Mm -hmm. as well. And, um, you know, it's really important to try to eat well, to Mm -hmm. try to get outside if you can, even Mm -hmm. just for a 10 minute walk around the block. Mm -hmm. Uh, to, you know, turn off and, uh, and create boundaries from digital devices mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, to the extent you can ensure that you're well rested. Um, mm-hmm. Preparing for a trial, it's often the better physical shape you're in, the easier it is to endure the trial. So I if you agree with you more and you're totally out of shape, the wear and tear on you from the trial is going to be a lot more difficult. 
for sure. Yeah, that's why I always told my staff when they come home, you're going to get the post-trial flu. So much energy and, you know, it's just engulfing you mentally, physically, emotionally, um, you know, all that is going to affect them. And so I tried to always prepare them coming back and giving them time off because that was always a such an in, intense place to be. And so it's, I totally get that. And that's my, my first place was always hitting the chiropractor, <laughs> chiropractor first. And cause that, that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on. Um, I don't know if I got a chance to talk to you about it was uh, some legal meditation. So meditation that actually is legally focused um, where you can actually go to lunch and take a break. You can actually, before your deposition, you can go through this. So I'm working on some meditations to kind of just give some, a break to the mind and, you know, get back to your your being and your center and your soul to to really, you know, be the best we can be. So, you know, Gail, I, I really thank you today. This has been a really great conversation. I, I couldn't wait to talk to you because I knew you would have some great input in this at this level. It's such a, a unique level that we're talking about here. And I know your job cannot be like easy emotionally, physically, you know, just wants you to take care of yourself. So I really appreciate being here talking with me today. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That's great. So, well, everyone, thanks for joining me. And remember, just go out and spread some love. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.